you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Micah, our next prophet on the list that we'll be looking at. And uh, Micah is a very interesting book. There's some very uh, famous quotes new, that we find about Jesus in this book. So we got some really interesting stuff to look at, some really good news to look at. But uh, it's a minor prophet. <coughs> And minor prophets always begin with what? Some sort of judgment. God's really mad at the nation, and uh, uh, he's about to pronounce judgment. And a lot of times we think that's the main theme. But the main theme for all the minor prophets is not judgment. It's restoration and salvation. It's the mercy of God. And so we're going to find that here in Micah 2 when, when we, after we wait a few uh, through a few of these uh, first few chapters but but hang in there and and uh, uh, there's some good application here even even in this uh, part about the judgment we're going to be looking at beginning in chapter number one well, let's talk a little bit about the book the title of the book is Micah so I wonder where we get that we get that from the name of the prophet actually his Hebrew name is Micaiu Micaiu uh, which simply means who is like Yahweh. Literally, that's what his name means. Who is like Yahweh? So his name actually asks a rhetorical question. What's the answer to that question? Who is like Yahweh? No one's like Yahweh. No one's like Yahweh in power. No one's like Yahweh in holiness and righteousness. No one can judge a nation like Yahweh can judge a nation, but no one can show grace like Yahweh can judge grace. And, and really his name is also the theme of the book. Who's like Yahweh? In fact, I, if I was to give you a verse that I says kind of sums up the theme of the book, I would go to chapter 7 if you flip over there and look down at verse number 18 and listen to what he says. And he uses his name there in verse number 18, he says, who is a God like you? And listen to what he says, pardon, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Thank goodness that's the God we serve. Who is a God like him? I mean, study all the other gods. I mean, don't waste your time doing that, but if you were to study all the other pagan gods, they were angry gods. They were gods who had to be appeased through, through works, who had to be appeased through, through sacrifices. But God made the sacrifice for us. He showed his mercy through Jesus Christ for us. And we don't have to do anything because who is a God like Yahweh? There's no other God like Yahweh. Well, by now, we've studied enough of these minor prophets to know that that again, that the recurring theme in these minor prophets begins with judgment, but it is really not about judgment. It's about restoration and God's mercy, and that's what we're going to see here as we look in the book of Micah. So go to the book of Micah, and, and uh, let's begin down in, in verse number 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So we can kind of date his, his, uh, 
ministry. And it's a very long ministry because he, he served during the lives of those, the reign of those three kings, and, so those, and those were kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, the fact he saw the word of the Lord, what's that tell us? He had. He had a vision. He had a vision of the judgment, coming judgment of God, but he also had a vision of the restoration of the nation under the Messiah. He actually has a vision of the birth of the Messiah. We, we know from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So he had a lot of visions. And uh, uh, he, he was from this little town of Moresheth, which is a little farm town about 20 miles right on the border of the Philistines, right on about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And uh, like Amos, more than likely, he was a, he was a farmer, uh, a sheep herder or a farmer. And uh, he was called in, out of his profession into the ministry to preach the impending judgment of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. If you remember Amos, Amos was a, from the southern kingdom, and he went up and preached judgment against the northern kingdom. Well, Micah, throughout his ministry, those 50 years of ministry he had, he preached the impending judgment of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And uh, we know that the time period was somewhere around 750 to 700 B.C., and that would make him a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and he was a pretty famous prophet, and he actually had an impact on the nation because we know, because go with me over to Jeremiah. Go, go back to Jeremiah, which actually was written after Micah. But go back with me to Jeremiah and look at verse number 26. <coughs> verse number, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter number 26, verse number 18. Look at and you see him mentioned by the great prophet Jeremiah. So he was a pretty well-known prophet in his day. Look at 26.18. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke of all the, all, to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And then he gives us, this is his prophecy, and we're going to read it in a lot more detail in Micah. But he says, Zion, or Jerusalem, will be plowed down like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple, like the bare hills of the forest. But look at verse number 19. We get a little more insight here. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of, did, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah ever put him to death? And the answer to that is no. Uh, did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the answer to that is yes. And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against the southern kingdom because of his ministry. So he had a very effective ministry. And why did he have an effective ministry? Well, you look at the kings there, not Ahaz. Ahaz was a terrible king. But Ahaz, and Ahaz didn't listen to any of the prophets. He didn't listen to Isaiah, and he certainly didn't listen to Micah, and he probably set out to kill them both. Uh, but... <clears throat> but Hezekiah came along, and he heard the words of these prophets, and Hezekiah led a revival in the land, and they, re they repented, and so God relented on the judgment of the southern kingdom while the northern kingdom was being judged by Assyria. If, if they hadn't repented, the Assyrians would have come right on down, and they would have destroyed 
the southern kingdom too. Remember how they surrounded Jerusalem and they wrote those nasty letters and Hezekiah laid those letters out on the, on the bed and said, Lord, are you going to take this from these pagans? And the Lord said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm going to drag them right back up to Assyria and that, that guy that's harassing you is going to be dead before he knows it. And so uh, anyway, you get a little bit of insight there that I think that's interesting on the fact that what a great prophet this guy must have been. And he actually was more than a prophet just to the northern kingdom and to the southern kingdom. Micah actually prophesies to all of us. Now, indirectly, all the prophets prophesy to all of us. But Micah specifically prophesied not just against Israel and the northern kingdom, but all the nations, all the peoples of this earth. And, he, and you can see that looking at verse number uh, 1. Listen to what he says, um, actually, verse number 2. He says in verse number 2, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. Who's he speaking against here? All of us. Everybody. And the Lord speaks from his righteous, from his holy temple. He, he knows what's right. God determines what's right. He determines what's true. He determines what's good. He determines what's evil. And so God is the one who speaks to all the nations of the earth and says, from his holy temple, and says, guess what? You're not holy. You know, the Bible really doesn't speak very highly of mankind. We really, we don't get a bad rap, but we get an honest look at ourselves in the Bible. I mean, you go to the very first of the Psalms, and, and you can read Psalm 1, but I'm going to read a little bit from Psalm 2. Listen to what it says. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? I mean, here was David writing way back in his time about all times. That's the heart of mankind. We will not have this man. We will not have Jehovah God rule over us. That was the heart of Israel. And they, and they were without excuse because they had the oracles of God. We're without excuse because we have the oracles of God. The United States of America is without excuse because at one time, everybody on this, in this country had a Bible. And all they had to do was open it and read it. And God would show them truth. But the nations don't want this word. They don't want God to rule over them. A lot of people call themselves Christians don't really want God to rule over them. And so he goes on. I'm back in the psalm again. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens on his righteous throne, on his holy temple, he shall laugh. But the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. If they won't listen to his grace, they won't listen to his word, he will speak to them at some point in his wrath and distress them in deep, 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 dark displeasure. In Psalms 14, in Romans 3, listen to what the Lord has to say about mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. Guess where, that, where we land in that? 
We're in the no, not ones. There's none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, who wants to understand. There is none who seeks after God. Let me tell you what, if God hadn't sought after me, I'd be lost as a goose, and that's true for you too. If the hound of heaven hadn't chased us down, we'd be, go, we'd be just like the rest of this world. They have all turned aside. All means all. They have together become unprofitable, and there is none who does good, no, not one. God sitting on his throne has those words to say about the state of mankind. And here in verse number one, Micah becomes a witness against us all. And he basically says there's none who are righteous. And the Lord sees all that we do, everything we've done and will do and have ever done. God sees that from his holy temple. And it's not a pretty picture. And every single one of us deserve judgment. And without Christ, we would be judged. Because when we refuse to do things God's way, then, then God speaks to us in wrath. But, but, he loves mankind. You know, I want to give you this idea that God doesn't love this world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loves us. And so he's made a way for us to be restored. That's his message in, in Micah. That's his message in the entire Bible. But we can't ever be restored if we don't first realize we need restoring. And that's, where, that's what keeps most people out of heaven. They don't think they need restored. They think they're just fine, thank you. I don't need the blood of Christ to cover me. I don't need the righteousness of God. I've got pretty good righteousness myself. No, not in God's eyes, you don't. None of us do. And going on back to Micah, verse number th three. Now he's gonna he's gonna switch here and he's gonna he's gonna talk specifically. Actually, he's gonna talk about the, the great tribulation. He's not really switching. In verse number three, he says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. There's coming a point when the Lord will say, I've had enough with mankind. Just like he did in the days of Noah. And we're right there, I got to tell you. We're right there. Just as Israel was on the verge of being judged, I believe this world is on the verge of being judged. This nation is on the verge of being judged. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down. When he comes down, you better look out. And tread on the high places of the earth, for the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before, before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. So I have no doubt here he's speaking of the great tribulation. Before he begins to pronounce this judgment upon Israel that's going to come through the nation of Assyria and through Babylon, he's going he's to, he, first of all, what he's doing here. He doesn't want anybody to get smug and say, well, Israel deserves that. Uh, you know, the Israel way back then deserved what they got. No, we all deserve, we all got it coming, kid, as Clint Eastwood said. We all got it coming. 
Every single one of us has got it coming. But now he turns his focus to Israel in, in verse number five. He says, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What's the transgression of Jacob? I mean, does it not begin in Syria? Is it not some, I mean, does it not begin in Samaria? Is it not Samaria? Samaria was the seat of government of the northern kingdom. And so everything that, or the leadership of the nation morally and religiously, the northern kingdom, it came out of Samaria. And, and then he speaks of the, uh, the judgment of Judah. He says, what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? I mean, Jerusalem should have been the center of Yahweh worship, and it had become the center of idol worship, pagan worship. And so he says, is it, is it not coming from Jerusalem? I mean, Samaria is, 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 put, is putting out this evil uh, agenda, uh, and they're ruling the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem is, is, is engaged in idolatry, and it's coming straight from the heart of the nation in Jerusalem. I mean, things are really bad. And so he says these capital cities are going to be judged first, and they're going to be judged with fire, and they're going to be judged the hardest because they have some responsibility or a good bit of responsibility in the transgressions of Judah and the northern kingdom. And I look at the United States, and you go back to 9-11, and which cities in the United States got hit the hardest? I mean, really two of them, right? Uh, D.C. and New York City. And I have no doubt when God begins to judge this nation, those two cities are going to be judged first. Not that we're better people than them. I'm not being like Ted Cruz here and saying everybody in New York is evil and we're all a bunch of good people down here in the South. That's not true. But a lot of the agendas, evil agendas, are coming out of Washington, D.C. A lot of the evil uh, talk against God comes straight out of New York City. And when God judges our nation, they'll be the first to go. I mean, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of New Yorkers who are, not a lot, but there'll be some New Yorkers who are spared, and some people in D.C. who are spared who know the Lord. But, but those cities have done a lot of damage to our nation, and they're going to be held responsible for that, just as Samaria and, and Jerusalem was held responsible for the fall of those two nations morally and spiritually. And in, in verse number six, he says, therefore I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field. It'll be nothing more than dirt. It'll be a place to plant a vineyard. I will pour down her stones on the valley and I will uncover her foundations. It'll, it'll be nothing but dirt. And if you were to go to where the, moder- where the ancient city of Samaria set, uh, in the days that Michael was prophesying, if you were to go there today, you know what you would find? You would find shepherds and vineyards. That's what's there now. And just as God said, I, it's going to be plowed up and it's going to turn into farmland. In verse number seven, he says, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with a fire. All her idols I will lay desolate for she gathered it from 
the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of the harlot. In those pagan religions that the Israelites were adopting, at the center of those religions was all sorts of illicit sex, prostitution, homosexuality. It was all involved in that, and that's what built all of these fancy temples in Samaria. And God's saying, I'm going to bring all of that down. Her pay is going to be destruction. She, she, she built all of that with the pay of a harlot, and I'm going to repay her with, with, with fire. Then in verse number 8, he says, uh, Micah says, I will, Micah sees all of this in a vision. I mean, he saw the word of the Lord, and he had to see some terrible things. He could actually go out into the future, and he could see the destruction of Samaria and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so he says, I will wail, in verse number 8, and I will howl. I will go uh, stripped and naked, and I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the, like the ostriches. I, you know, I, I've heard coyotes howl when they're upset about something, and a jackal's like a coyote, and that's a terrible shrieking sound, and that's what he's talking about there. Uh, I've never heard an ostrich mourn, but I, I have in commentaries I read where that's, that's a really shrieking, terrible sound. And whenever a Jew stripped himself of his clothes and went out into the public naked, it was, it was because of the great, great, great distress. So he says, I'm going to do that. And then listen to what he says in verse nine, number 9. He says, for her wounds are incurable. Now, apparently there was some repentance in the southern kingdom, but that was only temporary. Her wounds are incurable. The, the wounds from the destruction, but I think more than that, he's talking about the moral wounds. The things that are going on in the nation are incurable. God's going to have to judge Israel. God's going to have to judge the northern kingdom. He's going to have to judge the southern kingdom. It's all, for, it's, for it's come to Judah, his people. It's come all the way to the gates of my people, to Jerusalem. So he's extremely upset because he sees this vision, and he sees the destruction of his nation, and, and, and it's unbearable to him. And he realizes that there's no turning back because the wounds are incurable at this point. Now, I don't want to sound pessimistic tonight. I don't want to drive the few of you left away that are left here. But I think maybe when we look at the condition of the United States of America, it might be time to wail like a jackal, to mourn like an ostrich. Because I believe our wounds are incurable. I've really reached the, I really think we've reached a point our wounds are incurable. I mean, we've got a kind of a conservative government in, in the United States of America right now. And, and, you know, I never put my hope in governments, but I was thinking maybe there might be some chance for revival, but the left's not going to let good alone. And I'm not saying Trump's a good man. I'm not, I'm not, I think Pence is a really good man. And Pence was speaking at Notre Dame this past weekend, and, and the people walked out on him, the, the left. They, they don't want to listen to it. That's incurable. 
when you're not even going to listen to another side, another view, and you reach a state where you're incurable. I saw it heard in the news, and I don't know if you saw this or not, but but at the California Democratic Convention, the outgoing uh, Democratic Party chairman, John Burton, started shouting obscenities at Trump, and they began to chant those obscenities against Trump, whether you like Trump or not. That's incurable. That's incurable. When you go to that extreme, that's incurable. I mean, we've reached the state where we're, we're a lot like the left is like the brown shirts in World War, just before World War II in Nazi Germany. They wouldn't let, listen to any other side. They would shout people down. They would, they would burn their books. They would, they would, they would, they, they, they were intolerant. And I get a real kick out of the fact the left calls us intolerant. And they're the most un- intolerant people in the world. And if you're listening to this and you're on the left, you need to get right. That's all I can say. I mean, whether it offends you, tough. Because, because that, this godless uh, part of our society that wants anarchism, it wants communism, and I, you know, you look at what's going on in Venezuela, and you say, why in the world would they want something like that? This experiment with socialism in Venezuela has bankrupt the nation. It's going to happen to us if those people take power. But you, you got to say, we've really reached a point without some kind of revival. It's incurable. And here's the problem. Revival requires some desire to want to know God. God's just not going to come down and zap some leftists and say, I want you, you now love me. No, he's not going to do that. It requires some kind of repentance. And the only thing at this point when we reach a stage like this, something really, really bad has to happen in order to get a nation to repent. And I really believe that's where we are now. Now, things went on in Israel, you know. I mean, this, he prophesied for 50 years. Things could go on a while. I'm not saying to doom, uh, preaching doom tomorrow, you know. But i got to tell you, you look at it, what's going on, and, and who has the powers in this nation today. And, and our situation, without a lot of help from God, is incurable. So we need to be wailing. We need to be in sackcloth. Don't run around naked, though. Don't be doing that. Now, what he's going to do, this is this passage we're about to get into. How many of you are Hebrew scholars? Hebrew scholars love this passage. I'm not a Hebrew scholar either. But they love this passage because uh, Micah does all sorts of word, Hebrew word plays here. And I wish I was a better at Hebrew, but you don't know Hebrew, so it wouldn't do you any good anyway. But if I was in a Hebrew class right now, the, the Hebrew professor would be drooling and you know, he'd be so excited Smiling because there's all sorts of nice little Hebrew word plays here, but I'll try to give you a few of them as we go through it. But as he pronounces his judgment, look at verse number 10. He says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. I mean, don't, <laughs> you tell it to the Philistines what's going to happen to you. They could care less. 
They're not going to cry for you. They're not going to weep. In Beth Afra, Afra means dust. In, and you see the play of words here. In Beth, in the house, Beth means house. In the house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. In the house of dust, in mourning. Pass by you inhabit. Well, let me give you the words shafir. It means to be clothed in a beautiful way. And then he says, pass by in a naked shame. You who inhabitants who are clothed in a beautiful way. Because your nakedness is going to be exposed. In the inhabitants, the inhabitants of Zanon, which means the places of flock, the places of herds, the herds do not go out because there aren't any herds anymore. Uh, Bethazel, which means the adjoining house, the house next to you. They built their houses. If you go to Europe, you've been to Europe, you've seen how they build houses in Europe. I haven't been to the Middle East, but they built their houses like that. And so when you had a fire, what happens to all? Everything burns. They didn't build them with firewalls. If one house collapses, what happens to the next house? It falls like a domino. So he says, the adjoining house mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. In other words, the houses are falling like dominoes. For the inhabitants of Morath, which means bitterness, they pine for happiness or good. You could translate that happiness. But what did they get? They got bitterness because disaster came to the, to the gates. But disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitants of Lachish, harness the chariots and the swift steeds. Uh, she, was, she was beginning to send beginning, she was the beginning of the sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. In other words, the idolatry that took place in Lachish was now being found in Israel, and so you're going to fall with Israel. Therefore you shall give presents to Morshareth Gath, the houses of Exib, shall be, be a lie to the kings of Israel. They went to the Philistines, when this war started and they bought their military help. But when the Syrians actually attacked, the Philistines were of no help to them at all. They just took their money and laughed when the Assyrians came down on them. It says in verse 15, yet I will bring, and now let me drop back a minute. Here are the Israelites. They went to the Egyptians for help paid off the Egyptians, and the Egyptians promised they would send an army. They went to the Assyrians and got a promise, although the Assyrians were pretty much a vassal state of the Assyrians at that point. But they paid these various states, the Philistines, to join them in battle, to bring their armies into the battle against the Assyrians. But when the battle started, there was nobody there to help them. They, took, they had taken their money, but they didn't come to, to their aid. And so... God kind of scolds him this, on this now, and he says the only help that's going to come to you will come one day from the Lord, far, far out in the future. You're not going to get any help from these other nations. It's going to come from the Lord. And so you see this glimmer of hope right in the middle of this pronouncement of judgment. Look at verse number 15. I will yet bring an heir to you. 
O inhabitants of the hills, Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come back to Adullam. Y'all remember where Adullam is? You don't remember Adullam? That's the valley where David fought Goliath. Maybe the most glorious victory in the history of the Israelites. They all always thought, you know, one day I'll have a victory like the victory at Adullam that David had. But the glory of Israel and the heir that's gonna, God's going to use to restore Israel, who is he speaking of there? He's speaking to the son of David, the, the one who had that great victory at Adullam, his son, one of his descendants, none other than Jesus Christ, is going to be their only hope. And one day he will come and redeem them and uh, uh, give them a future and give us a future when he comes and rules and reigns on this earth. So you see this glimmer of hope, and you can see this throughout the book of Micah. You can see these references to Jesus Christ. But until he comes, listen to what he says in verse number 16. He says, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. When an Israelite cut their hair, it was a, th- it was a mark of shame and mourning, just like nakedness was. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle because your children will go from you into captivity. You're going to die, and your children, who are so precious to you, are going to go into captivity. I don't know if you've been watching Trump's trip to Israel. And the Israelites are all excited. And I, and I, I certainly, his uh, relationship with Israel seems to be a lot better than the last president's relationship. He's promising them things and promising them help that our last president didn't. And so he seems to be pro-Israel. And so they're excited about that. And they've made some arms deals, and Saudi Arabia's, Arabia's made some arms deals. And, and, you know, to them, things are looking up. But I got to tell you something. I don't put my faith in Donald Trump. And I don't put my faith in the government of the United States. So I got news for Israel. They better not be putting their faith in Donald Trump or in the United States of America. Donald Trump could be gone tomorrow. I mean, in four years from now, we could have the most liberal government we've ever had in the United States, the most anti-Israel government. It can happen just like that because the left hates Israel. For some reason, they love the Muslims. I'll tell you the reason. Because demonic people love demonic things. And godly people love godly things. And Israel is the apple of God's eyes. And so when you see this anti-Semitism, it is demonic on every level. And as soon as that group takes control, just like it did in Nazi Germany, then the Jews are going to be in trouble and America's not going to be there to help. But God's going to be there to help. Because, Because when this happens, this time, I firmly believe 
They're going to go into the great tribulation and they're going to have horrors like they've never seen before. But at one point, when enough's enough, the Lord's going to return. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. God is going to pour out his spirit on that nation and they're going to look on him whom they have pierced and they're going to mourn as a mother mourns for her only son. That day is coming. Jesus is their hope, and he's my hope, and he's your hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement in this word. Lord, that the, the, your heir, David's heir, is coming back soon to make things right on this earth. You're the Lord of glory, Lord. And we do sing Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Until that time comes, Lord, open doors for us to share the gospel. Lord, as these times get more and more difficult, I know those opportunities are going to come. And help us to be ready. Help us to be watchful. Help us to be looking up. Because we know that our redemption draweth nigh. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you for the cross. In your precious name that I pray. Amen.